Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast. This show is all about art, craft, and creativity, and I produce it weekly in the hope that it will help all of us live long and crafty lives. Welcome back to another episode of Craft Sanity. This week I went to my bookshelf and took a look at the books that I seem to have a lot of. Right away, one of the names that jumped off my bookshelf is Melanie Fallick. I've been a fan of Melanie's for quite a long time. The interview came together kind of quickly, but then I kind of thought, oh boy, I hope this goes well. (laughs) Because you know how it is when you admire someone's work. You almost have this like illusion that they're going to be really nice and everything's going to be great. And then sometimes, I think we've all had these experiences where you get a chance to either talk to somebody or you meet them in person and you're just like, oh man, what a donor. (laughs) Well, the only reason I'm even bringing this up is obviously this interview with Melanie went quite well. It was a lot of fun. Just a little bit about Melanie for those who aren't familiar. She is... 43. She lives in Beacon, New York. Melanie is the former editor of Interweave Knits and author of several books. She's the editorial director for STC Craft, and she had the Melanie Fallick imprint. So the books she is acquiring and helping authors complete and get them published into your local bookstore, they all have her name on them. But she's also writing now, too, so I am pretty sure that this is going to be an inspiring interview. The cool thing is I know a lot of guests I've talked to either have book deals or they are looking to, at some point, publish a book. And like myself, I mean, I think a lot of us have that dream that someday we'll be able to walk into a bookstore and see our name on a book on a shelf. And how great would that be? Well, today Melanie is going to give us all some advice on what it takes to get a book deal. So... Settle in with a project. You might want to have a pad of paper and a pencil nearby because I have a feeling that you might want to take a note or two during this interview. Melanie is going to dispense some pretty good information about publishing. After the show, please check out craftsanity.com for more information about Melanie and her work and links to her books. This week, I have an extra special reason to refer you to the website. And I guess this is a bit self-serving what I'm going to tell you, but um, that Craft Sanity swag page is finally up. You'll be able to see those Craft Sanity t-shirts I've been talking about. So um, more about that after the show. So let's get to that chat with Melanie Fallick. Before we move too far here, get your your current title right now, because you're doing, you're still in publishing Mm-hmm. And you're with STC now. What What is your role with STC? I'm the editorial director of an imprint that's called STC. It's actually called STC Craft of Melanie Fallick Books, but I generally just call it STC Craft. So you're just not comfortable calling it the, the Melanie Fallick book uh, line? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little weird. <laughs> well, congratulations. But don't kill me if I don't mention it because important to the people at the company. Yeah, well, I'm sure, well, I, the thing, I mean, I know personally, I, I, when I see your name on a book, I'm like, okay, it's going to be a quality book. Um, just because you, I mean, your track record is, I mean, you've proven yourself many times over. So, so how does it feel to have a, an imprint named after you? Well, I feel proud that a company would want to do that. <laughs> so I, I feel proud that I've been able to establish kind of a level of quality 
and I'm known for that, uh, if I had my preference, my name wouldn't be on all the books like that, but it's fine. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's congratulations. I think it's Thanks. wonderful. And let's back up a little bit. I know you've been in publishing for a long time, mm -hmm. but can you maybe tell, tell just kind of your story of, you know, how you got started, maybe what you studied in, in college, and, and how you got to this, this point where you're at right now, and, uh, you know, so you can start wherever you feel the story begins. You don't have to start at your birth, if, but you can. Yeah. If, you, if, you, if you want to, you can. I won't stop you. Yeah. But. No, <laughs> the, funny, the funny thing is, and this will make sense at the end of the story, when I was really young, I wanted to be a writer. I think we'd be like seven years old. I would write little books, and I continued to write stories for a long time when I was a kid. And, um, you know, then I had my childhood and went to college and was a French major, actually. I studied French and linguistics and went into international relations and and decided I didn't want to do that. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and I moved to New York and thought I wanted to work in publishing, so I just went to a newsstand. I think it was in Port Authority. <laughs> I looked at a whole bunch of magazines, and for some reason I decided that I wanted to work for Chocolatier magazine. And um, so when I got home, I called, and they happened to have an opening for an editorial assistant, and I went in, I interviewed, and got the job. So that was my beginning in publishing. Oh, that's cool. How long had you been in New York when you uh, went to the newsstand to look for... Um, oh, I mean, I had, uh, like, a week. I mean, I I grew up in New Jersey, so, it, you know, I knew the city, and I had moved from Washington back to New York, and um, or back to New Jersey, and then I was looking for a job and looking for an apartment, and I think I had been back about a week, and... I just thought, well, if you want to work in publishing, you got to go to the newsstand. <laughs> you want to work <laughs> at a magazine, I guess, was my thinking. You had to kind of see what's out there, what's available. So yeah, you, and I mean, I had actually, I guess, I had just, uh, in between Washington and New York, I actually went and spent some time in Paris, and I, I think I had, I had used the Food Lover's Guide to Paris as kind of a, a major guidebook, and so I had been to all these different places that made special chocolate, so it was on my mind, and um, I assume that's why that magazine appealed to me, and it was a little funky magazine, and uh, I was very fortunate because when I called just out of the blue, they were like, oh yeah, we have an opening. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it cool when the stars align like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah, I worked there for about a year and a half, and and I actually worked for a small chocolate company doing marketing and once again decided I wanted to work in publishing again. So I became a freelance editor, and I did that for a really long time, and I worked on tons of cookbooks. And then in the midst of all that, I decided that I wanted to knit, and I got really involved in knitting and decided that I really wanted to incorporate my love of knitting into my career in publishing so I started pursuing any kind of freelance work that had anything to do with crafts because I thought that would help me. So how old were you when you started to knit, when you learned? Well, I learned as a kid, but I never really did much. I would kind of knit for a little while on a piece. <laughs> and then put <laughs> and it then I would stop. I mean, I never really made anything. And then when I was in college, I had actually done a 
semester in France, and there, like, a lot of the girls knit. And so I did almost finish a sweater. Well, it became a vest, and one of my French friends finished the neckline for me, but I did knit that. And then I stopped, and then I, when I was 25, I kind of took it up seriously. And I had met my husband, and as a surprise for our first Valentine's Day, I wanted to make him a scarf, so I just went to the Yellow Pages and found a yarn shop in my neighborhood, and I went in, and I just was totally overwhelmed by how beautiful all the colors and textures were, and that's when I became pretty serious about knitting, and I was in particular interested in telling the kind of the stories of women in different cultures by way of their needlework, and in particular their knitting, so I started and investigating those ideas and got the chance to go to the Shetland Islands and the Outer Hebrides to do some articles for Vogue Knitting and Knitters Magazine. And then I got the opportunity to go to Russia, to the Orienburg region, to write an article for Interweave Knits Magazine. Well, and that sounds fantastic. I mean, how did you get started? with the? Because you had been in publishing, but had you been doing writing all along? Kind of. I mean, as I said, when I was really young, I always wanted to be a writer, and I was always a really, I was always just kind of a a pretty good writer, like, whatever I did in school, like, if I had to, even if I was, whatever subject I was studying, that comment was, oh, this is really well written. (laughs) You know, even if I was just writing a paper for, you know, a sociology class, it was always writing. So it was just something that was in you. You, you Yeah. Yeah. It came naturally to me, and, um... Yeah, and then when I was at Chocolatier, I mean, we had such a small staff, and it was just such a small, funky place, and my boss was really great. And, you know, if I said, oh, I want to do an article on this, she'd say, okay. And <laughs> so I had the chance to write. And I think over the years, even when I was working as an editor on cookbooks, there were a couple of cookbook writers whose books I worked on that were really, really good writers. And I would pay attention to why I thought they were good writers and try to learn from them. So... I was pretty conscious of what I was reading or what I was editing and what made it work or not work. Um, And I think I was scared. I mean, when I got the chance to go to Scotland and do those articles, I mean, I I just figured I really want to do this, so I'll just pursue the opportunity and then I'll deal with the fact that I don't know if I can actually do it afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine that that would be um, a lot of pressure because they're flying you someplace and you're like, geez, I I hope the article turns out. Yeah, I mean, I tell people often, you know, well, just pretend you can do it and then you will do it. You know, pretend you know what you're doing and people will actually believe you. And obviously it's worked out pretty well for you. (laughs) You Yeah, it has worked yeah. out pretty well. I think I've always been kind of aware of my strengths and weaknesses <laughs> and been more prone to pursue opportunities that played to my strengths. Than yeah, well, that's weaknesses. very smart, very smart. So then you don't yeah. have to worry about the whole disappointment aspect, you know, since yeah. you know what you can do. Yeah. So anyway, in the midst of all that stuff, I guess around the time that I was um, writing the articles, about the Shetland Islands, my husband and I decided to leave New York City and to move um, about two hours north into a pretty rural place so that my husband could go back to college. And when I did that, um, some of my freelance work lessened. And rather than worry about that, 
even though as a freelancer, you know, anytime you have 15 minutes free, you think you'll never work again. But <laughs> rather than focusing on that worry, I decided just to pursue things that I really wanted to do. And um, I had had this idea for a book that became Knitting in America, and I decided to write the proposal during that time. And so I wrote the proposal, and I called an editor who I did a lot of freelance work for, who worked for um, Artisan at the time, which is part of Workman, it's the illustrated book division. And I told her my idea. I, well, I didn't tell her. I said, you know, could we meet? And I wanted to talk to her about my idea, and maybe she could give me some advice. So she said, oh, sure, why don't you come in, and we'll go out to dinner. So we went out to dinner, and I told her my idea, and she really liked it. She said she wanted to do it, and so she did what she needed to do to get approval for it, and that was Leslie Stoker, who has been my editor on all of my books and is now my boss <laughs> in my day job. <laughs> so, you know, I've been working with her since, well, I've been working for her for, um, I think, about 16 years, if you count all the freelance stuff, but she was the editor. I started working on Knitting in America in 1994, and so my editor ever since and supported me on every single book I wanted to do. It's a beautiful book and extremely well written and I actually have it. I pull all my, you know, the books that I have that are by you off my shelf and I'd like to talk about this book for a little bit. I mean, it's a wonderful idea and it must have been just a, an amazing experience to go and see all these people and travel. Uh, how many miles do you think you traveled to put this I don't know. Out? We never figured out the miles. The photographer and I traveled together most of the time and I think we figured out that we had traveled in 24 states over the course of like seven and a half months. Oh, wow. I mean, we didn't travel all the time. We would go away and then come back and then go away again. And I don't remember how many days we were on the road. Was it like one stop at a time and then you come back and write? Or no, you... I would kind of do it and organize it like in clumps. Like okay. I, would, I basically, you know, I had this list of people that were going to be in it. And in the beginning, I didn't have a complete list. I just had some people. And then... I would literally just, like, get out their addresses and then look at the map. And for those who maybe aren't familiar with your book, um, Knitting in America, if you can just kind of explain, you know, briefly just the whole premise, your idea. What, what were you aiming for with this book? Okay, I can tell you that. Before I say that, I should say, though, it was reissued in paperback, and it's now called America Knits. But when it originally oh, okay, came okay. out, it was called Knitting in America. Yeah, I and have the original version here. Yeah, my idea was to write about people who were passionate about knitting or about raising animals, um, and in one case, plants, for the fiber that could be used for knitting. And at the time, when I started the book in 1994, you know, knitting had a, still had a pretty pathetic reputation, and there weren't really any American publishers doing beautiful books, and the few books that were really nice were coming out of England. So I thought that I wanted to meet and get to know and write about all, a, a group of really extraordinary Americans who were involved in the knitting world um, and do a little bit to help the image of knitting in this country. And I was very fortunate because people got really excited about the idea very, very quickly and they helped me in many ways and welcomed me into their home. And, you know, I didn't have the teeniest budget ever, but I did, certainly didn't have a big budget. And there were a lot of expenses involved, especially with all that travel. Um, 
and people were really generous about being part of it, even though nobody was going to make a ton of money on it. And um, it was, you know, an opportunity of a lifetime. I feel like it was a gift to my, it, you know, it ended up being such a gift to me because I got to meet so many extraordinary people and I got to, you know, be with them and be with their families. I usually spent like at least like a day or day to a day and a half with them and often I slept in their guest room or on their couch or something. So you're getting and, to know them very well because you're right in their home. Yeah, you know, and sometimes when I was, you know, I would tape all the interviews and but sometimes I would just go with them to, you know, pick up their kids at the bus or I'd have dinner with their family or we'd, you know, stay up late into the night and then I would go into their studio and I could really kind of see their, I always wanted to see them in their own environments. And, you know, sometimes it was just the littlest thing that became really important to me and how I understood them. It could just be like a quote that they had stuck on their bulletin board that would tell me something about them and help me to ask them questions that were going to lead to profiles that would be interesting for people to read. Um, and I think that that book really struck a chord with people. You know, the publisher really supported it a great deal, and they sent me on a 17-city book tour when it came out, and we got tons of press everywhere, and I did a lot of TV and radio, and there were newspaper articles, and I think that, you know, the media just really wanted to they thought they saw it was a really pretty book, and then they kind of latched onto, you know, oh my God, I can't believe you don't have gray hair and a bun, you know, knitting <laughs> 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 isn't just for grandma anymore. But in terms of the people that found out about the book and bought the book and read the book, I think they were just really inspired because they read about these people who had taken something they were passionate about and made it a major part of their lives, and oftentimes a career, and people read it and thought, wow, if, you know, so-and-so can do that, then I can do that. And to this day, I still meet people who say, you know, I started my business after I read that book um, because I just realized that I could. So that was, that's really gratifying to me to feel like it mattered to people. But these days, I mean, there's a whole new generation of knitters and, you know, <laughs> I think most of them have never even heard of the book. And if they looked at it, they would probably think, you know, it, it, didn't, it might not look that extraordinary to them because we've come so far. You right, know, in the, the last time, 10 years, it was yeah. like the only, one of the very few books out there that were, you know, that had really high production values and really beautiful photography. I mean, certainly there were, and I don't mean to, like, put down anything else that was out there, but it was, you know, it was a coffee table book from an American publisher, and then it was also people felt really interesting to read. Well, so. it was kind of the mix of the very artistic quality. I mean, high-quality photography, just beautiful photography, and then, you know, patterns, so it's practical. You know, it's not just a coffee table book. I mean, you could actually make the projects out of it, and the writing is, is wonderful as well. So I, I yeah. think it kind of, on, you know, hits people from, you know, on all three fronts there. And, um, and the names, I think even if people aren't familiar with it, um, this younger generation of knitters, the, the names... You you hit a lot of the big I mean big names in knitting I mean they're all and they're still yeah. big so yeah. you know that's that's pretty cool too but well maybe this is good timing then we'll kind of remind people about this yeah. book so if they missed it I mean it's definitely yeah. I mean it's on my bookshelf and I'd say this is kind of a must have if you like knitting and you've never heard of it I mean this is you're missing out because it is it, it's just it's fun to read and I it's been a while since I picked up the book and since I um, this interview came together kind of quickly I was like oh let me 
pull it out. And, um, and I noticed just with your writing style, which I had forgotten about, um, that you start every, you kind of pull people right into the writing right away with, you know, getting the person's name right in the first sentence. Everybody's listed by name, unless I'm mistaken, but I noticed that pattern in there where you're just bringing us into their life right away in that first sentence and setting the scene very well. So it's, um, it's, yeah, it's really great. And I think all of us like to know, I know that's one of the reasons why I started this show is I like to, I'm very curious about what people make, how they make it and why they do it. And Mm -hmm. this book gives, you know, several knitters across the country a chance to, to tell their story. And that's, that's really wonderful. Yeah. No, it's a fun book and I don't read it very often, but every once in a while I'll pull it off the shelf and, you know, it's been such a long time since I wrote it, and I'll start reading about someone, and I feel inspired. <laughs> All over again. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good, you know. I mean, it's it's good, too, when your work holds up, you know, 10 years, you're not going back to it and being like, oh, boy, you know, and that's really great. Yeah, you... there's a few rough spots in the writing that I do. Oh, my gosh, how could I write that? But well, for the most part, I'm really <laughs> pleased with it. And, you know, that book really came from my heart. So. Well, you can tell. You can yeah. tell because it's, um, yeah, it's wonderful. And so was it, this is really the book that put you on the map then? Yeah, it, it did. And, and, you know, for a publisher to send a knitting book author and a 17th City tour was pretty much unheard of back then. So, yeah, that, all of a sudden people knew about me and they knew the book. And, um, and so how did it change your life? I mean, I know that you said that this changed your life in the sense that it was, you know, got you a chance to meet all these wonderful people. But Yeah, I think that I realized, or I don't know that I realized it for the first time, but the idea was reinforced that um, you could follow your dreams or follow your bliss. And, and um, I had, I became friends with so many of the people that are in the book, and, you know, they became real inspirations to me in the dreams that I have for myself, both in the knitting world and in other parts of my life. So, you know, it, 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 that, that's certainly a great message for anybody. And, you know, it gave me a lot of confidence because, again, you know, when I wrote the proposal, I was really excited about it, but I, I was like, oh, my God, I have to do this. <laughs> so then you just kind of wake up in the morning and you put one foot in front of the other, and it's like, okay, i got to figure out how to travel 24 different states, and i got to do everything from organizing the plane trip to making sure that tape recorder works to being able to write something that people would want to read. And, be, you know, I did all the styling for all the photography, and it was, it was a lot of work, but it, it proved to me that I, I could do it. And um, while I was traveling, I remember saying to numerous people, like, oh, you should write a book for kids to learn how to knit, because the books that are out now don't seem to draw kids in. The only kids that are going to learn from those books are kids who are just absolutely determined to learn how to knit. Not, right, right. The books themselves don't sell knitting, and nobody took me up on the offer, so before um, Knitting in America even came out, I think I had the contract. I decided, I was oh, one day I just sort of thought, you know, Nobody took me up on that idea of writing a kids' knitting book. So now that I have done this and I know all of these people, and I could write that book. <laughs> yeah, I have that one too. And um, yeah. I actually bought it um, after I learned to knit and before I had kids. Um, <laughs> but one of the things I – and I recommend it to knitters who are adult knitters even who are just trying to learn, people learning to knit, because one of the things that is, is troubling about some of the other books, and it's improved, it definitely has improved in the last – um, five to seven years where there's a lot of 
books out now to teach mm -hmm. people to knit. But the thing that's cool about this one is since it's written for kids, it's written in a way that um, ad most adults, you would hope, <laughs> should yeah. be able to follow it. Um, yeah. And so it is It is really cool, too, for that. So so you just got on a roll then with after uh, your big trip across the country. Mm -hmm. um, you've been cranking out the books ever since. Kind of. Yeah. yeah I did the kids' book, and um, that, that was really, that's been incredibly successful. And... I think people who can learn from books can definitely learn from that book. There are certainly people who can't learn from that book because they're just not that kind of learner. Mm -hmm. But it's been that one has been especially gratifying because I feel like, you know, I think it sold like 175,000 copies so far. And I think, you know, it's just even a small percentage of the people who bought that book actually like learned from it or and then the percentage of people that were just kind of inspired to do knitting. Like I feel like I've done something useful in this world. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of knitters. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so that's good. And then I, after, I guess, when that book came out, I was pregnant with my son. And then when he was like five months old, I found out about that Interweave Knits was looking for an editor. And so then I got that job, which I wouldn't have gotten if I hadn't written these books. Right, right. <laughs> And, um, you know, I worked there, I can't remember, I think like two and a half or three years, three years. And then I left there to become an editor at Stuart DeBoy and Chang, which is where I work now. And I, so I kind of have come back to sort of where I started because my boss is the person who edits my books and <laughs> all of that. What is it like to be on the inside now? As opposed to one of the, you know, people writing a book uh, on the outside. Doing... It's interesting. You know, I, I certainly understand how decisions are made about which books are acquired and which books are supported with uh, publicity and marketing funds and, and how it all happens. And I like this part because I get to work with so many creative people and I become sort of a conduit for them. They have an idea and I'm sort of the person they have to go through to make it, to turn it into a book at our company if it's a craft book. And, you know, that's really nice to feel like I can help people make their dreams come true because so many people do have a dream of writing a book. And, you know, it's a privilege to sort of have such talented, creative people wanting to work with you. Well, and it's wonderful for them, too, to have somebody who is kind of the gatekeeper, you know, at the publishing company. You're, you're someone who's been, you know, you've, you've walked the same path. It's not like yeah, you came out of college I, and wanted to be in publishing and never have experienced this. So you probably can really empathize and relate to the folks yeah, that have come I to you. Yeah, I think it helps that I've, I've been there. And, you know, when they're uh, sometimes people, they don't really know how to go about doing their books and I can help them to understand what it entails and how to organize it and, and then when they're having a hard day and they call me I usually whatever's going on it's like yeah I totally get it I've been there <laughs> <laughs> and we actually one of the books that I am editing right now is called Knit Knit and it's by Sabrina Schwander and she does the Knit Knit magazine and 
it is kind of like an, in some ways an update of Knitting in America. She's approaching it in a very different way and in a very unique way that, to her. Um, but she, I think she's writing about, I think it's like 27 different knitters, not just in the United States, but primarily in the United States. Um, so that'll be exciting because it's kind of the next generation. Very cool. So we can look forward to that. When will that be coming out? Fall of seven. Okay. Yeah, and I guess the other thing that's really great about my job is it's not just knitting. <laughs> right. Why don't you talk a little bit about that, like the types of things you guys are publishing now? I can do anything in the craft world, but we're primarily acquiring books um, in knitting, crochet, sewing, quilting, embroidery, beading, um, jewelry making, and then kind of alternative approaches to crafting. Um, I think those are the areas that we've covered so far. Do you have one in weaving, too? Um, kids weaving and kids crochet, both of which are based upon the format of kids knitting. And I just love those kids' books, and they're really so important to me because I think that I think they're wonderful books, and, and I think that anybody we can bring in to these crafts at an early age, um, I think that... It's really important that we do that, and I, so again, just like I said, that you know, I feel like I've given the world something good with the kids' knitting book. I feel like you know, finding authors and working on the kids' crochet and the kids' weaving are the same. So they're not our biggest money makers yet, unless all of your listeners buy them, which I hope they will. <laughs> um, but they they matter to me a great deal. And in publishing, there's a tendency for all the efforts to go into what's on the front list, which is basically the books that are coming are out right, who just came out, or the ones that are about to come out, and then the backlist stuff doesn't get as much attention. But people at my company kind of know that if they want me to do something, that if they do something on the kids' books, that I'll be more flexible. <laughs> well, and that's when you can kind of cash in this reputation you have, you know, <laughs> because when Melanie says, you know, this is what I need, <laughs> it sounds like yeah. things well, I don't know. Maybe they'll listen to this and they'll do what be I laughing, do. right? No, no. <laughs> like, no, no, we don't do what she wants. Sometimes, you know. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure that the fact that you've been successful as, an, as a writer um, yourself and, um, you know, you've proven, you know, you have this reputation where people will buy a book because it has your name on it. You know? Yeah, I, I probably have Sometimes my job is in acquiring books um, might be a little bit easier than some other editors who do this because the area that I acquire in, I have a lot of knowledge in, and they, until I really mess up, they're willing to give me a lot of leeway mm -hmm. about the different ideas and stuff. It's like, okay, just trust her. <laughs> you know? So I'm fortunate in that way. Do you feel that the, the kids' books are even more important now because crafting kind of in, in several families, I mean, you're going to find people who might have grandparents or great grandparents who did a lot of needlework and, and crafts. And then it kind of fizzled out a little bit. And now there's this resurgence in the last decade. Um, but there are kids out there who might not have, they can't maybe ask their mother to teach them how to knit or, or weave yeah. or crochet. And, and do you feel like you're kind of, I mean, how important do you think these books are now in today's Society. I think they're extremely important. <laughs> I really do. I I think that even if you have somebody in the family that knows how to do it and they can teach you, hopefully these books are really inspiring so that they'll kind of feed you great ideas and, and ways of looking at what you do. Because in each of the books, the subject is approached not just 
in a how-to way, but really looking at the ways that, let's say, crochet or weaving are, have evolved in different cultures um, and in history and how, how the different yarns are chosen. And it, it's not just like, okay, this is where you stick the hook. It's right, really right, right. About how crochet or how weaving fit into a culture and how there, and oftentimes the places that you'll find it that you didn't even realize. I mean, in the kids weaving book, one of my favorite projects is um, a hideout, and you literally like take big sticks and branches and you weave them together to make this kind of teepee, and then you weave like wildflowers into it. And well, that's really cool. Yeah, and then you, you know, and you also learn how to weave with paper, then you learn to weave on a cardboard loom, and then you make a loom out of um, pipes, like plastic PVC pipes. So you really, really do learn how to weave, but I don't think when people, I don't think people often think that you could actually weave a hideout, for, and a hideout is such an appealing thing, especially for kids. Oh, yeah, and it also gets them thinking, too, about how to apply skills they learn to other yeah. things, you know. So and then there's this section in that book where it's, a, it's really a simplification, but it, it tells about weaving in the Iliad and the Odyssey. So, you know, you really get a, a pretty broad picture. So your appreciation of literature comes through. Yeah, or, yeah. or the authors. Yeah, yeah. But I guess, you know, I tried to guide the authors to include certain things. And the illustrations are just amazing and I think the books are delightful. Well, and I'm realizing too, like when I, I this question, last question I asked you is just ridiculous. And I say, like, so how important do you think these books are? Like you're going to say, well, I don't think they're important at all. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I said very important. Everybody should have them on their shelf. Yeah. But I, I think I understood your point, which yeah. was that there are families where there is not a teacher within the home, a natural teacher, whereas we, kids used to naturally learn from their mother or grandmother. There are many cases now where there's not a person who knows how to do it, or there's not a person with who has the time to teach it. And in addition, you know, there's so many things that compete for kids' time, and mm -hmm. you know, you got to catch their attention. <laughs> so, did you how how involved in like arts and crafts? I mean, how interested is your son? Because he's you said oh, he's not about, at all, not at all. <laughs> he's an eight-year-old boy who doesn't really want to knit. <laughs> no, he yeah. says because you know, mommy, I think your books are very beautiful, but I'm not very interested in them. <laughs> <laughs> but he likes a couple of them are dedicated to him and um you know he likes he likes telling the kids at school that his mom is an author and you know showing them my books yeah well that's got to be pretty cool for you too to know that your son is so proud of you yeah that's a nice feeling yeah though he does say you know can you write a book that's not about knitting <laughs> <laughs> So you'd have to write, like, I don't know what kind of things he's interested in, but, um, you know, you think you might sports. try to, oh, sports, like a sports book for kids? Yeah, well, he, for a while, he thought we were going to write the next Harry Potter. And uh. he, I knew someone who knew the author's agent, and so he insisted that I send an email to inform her that um, she didn't really need to bother <laughs> with the seventh book because we were going to take care of it. Oh, wow. And we did start it. Oh, Yeah. Well, maybe yeah. someday you might co-write something then, it sounds like. If your son has that kind of interest in books, it might, it probably won't be about knitting, but, you right. know. Yeah. Maybe. I would love to. That's sort of one of those parent fantasies. You know? Yeah. Oh, my son and I will write a book together. Well, I think you might have a, some, a few connections that, yeah. <laughs> that might help you. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about, just throughout your career, 
you know, on the surface at least, uh, doors open for you at times when you're looking to, you know, when you moved and you started focusing on what you're really interested in, this book deal came through, um, you know, it seems like that was fairly easy. Did you have to approach several different publishing companies or was it, did no, you? No, I, yeah, I mean, in some ways you could say it came through, came to me easily, but I said in the beginning that I've always been really good at understanding my strengths. <laughs> so you're not approaching the wrong publisher? Well, and I kind of... Right. Well, I I called, you know, I had been working as a freelancer for a, the perfect publisher for that book, and right. I had worked for Same her you. for, at that point, I, I, mean, I can't remember exactly, but, you know, five or six years, and I'd worked really hard and edited a lot of books for her, and I had, you know, really come through. Like, sometimes when you're an editor, you have to write people's books for them. Sometimes, like, a week before it, supposed to go to the printer, you know, oh my things happen, and, you know, certain authors don't come through, and, you know, I had done stuff like that for her, so on the one hand, I was really fortunate that it happened um, so quickly and without, you know, a lot of worrying or, you know, praying, <laughs> but <laughs> I also feel like, you know, I kind of set the stage for it because I had done a lot of good work for her, for, so she didn't sort of think, like, I don't know if she could do it. Right. They already knew. Well, I mean, how, I guess there are a lot of people who listen to this show who, you know, people have written me, asked me for advice to get published, and it's like, well, I don't have a lot to give because I'm, I basically publish rough drafts for a living um, as a journalist. I mean, <laughs> yeah. we don't have time. I'd be real curious to find out what I could do if I had, like, maybe a month or two, um, <laughs> let yeah. alone, you know, three months, four months. But what, what advice do you have for people who are really into the arts and want to do some writing? Well... Find an idea that you're really passionate about and um, start writing a proposal. I mean, oftentimes people think that a proposal is like this hurdle you have to get over. It sounds rather daunting, but, but what, what is it exactly? What, do you, what does proposal? it entail? Yeah, well, what does it entail? Usually it's um, a good summary of the book and, you know, a sample table of contents. It might have some sample text. And usually it will have, like, an overview of the market, you know, what, why is this book going to sell and why. And, and, and it might have some listings of opportunities, you know, marketing opportunities for the book. But I think what the writing the proposal does is it sort of forces you to sit down and, and nail down what the book really is. And oftentimes people have good ideas, but it's, it's not well-formulated. So I'll, and sometimes people will call me or write me with an idea and, you know, I have to really talk to them about it and, and try to, like, help them to shape it. And in some cases I will do that, um, you know, I'll stick with them throughout the whole thing and then we'll just figure out what the book is and then I will work to acquire it. Because I should point out, I... I don't absolutely make the decision. Like, I decide what I think that we should publish, and then I have a what's called a pub board, and they make the ultimate decision based on what I tell them about the book and then some financial work that I do. So you kind of do, like, a pitch then to a group of yeah, people? Yeah, I pitch it, and I have to do some work on, like, you know, what I propose, like, the size and the pages and how it's going to be put together and how much it's going to cost, and then they, there's, like, a financial analysis that happens. And then... And then the pub board decides. I so, see. Um, it's not just like, oh, I can say, okay, we're going to do it. I right. Well, say, the like, first... I really believe in this, and I think we'll be able to do it, but this is what we have to do in order to, for me to take the idea to the pub board. And it's not that I always need a proposal. 
but I find that if the person, if I say the person will write a proposal and they think writing the proposal is like too much work. Then you're like, how can this person possibly write a book? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it tells me a lot or if they hand me, or if they call me, the next call I get is how long does it have to be? <laughs> the book or the proposal? The proposal. Oh, goodness. It's sort of like, well, it needs to be long enough to really explain what your idea is. Like, and I find in the proposal writing stage, like personally when I've done it, I get really excited because I'm really, it's starting to um, gel in my head and then I think, oh, I could do this and I could do that. No, oh, how would the pieces fit together? And no, that wouldn't work and I wouldn't organize it this way, but if I organize it that way. And, and I really, and everybody has a different creative process, but for me it like creates like a vision of what the book is going to be. And that's, then it's almost like I just, I can't, like, if I'm working on my computer, I can't type it fast enough because it's pouring out of me. Um, and and that's really fun, you know, but I think that some people, to me that comes kind of naturally, but to other people, you know, they don't quite realize that they need to do that. Well, I think it's really fun for people to, to think, oh, I'm, I'm going to write a book, but it, you have to write the book. You have to do the hard part, you know. Well, which, that's the other thing. Yeah. People say, well, how do you write? And I'm like, well, you just, you write. Wait, people would do a book proposal and then ask you how to how they write I and mean, how to write. Well, or just people in general would oh, say okay. like, well, how do you say. like get going? Like, how do you like what do you do? And it's like, well, you got to sit down and just start typing, you know? Yeah, you got to sit down and start writing. And sometimes that sounds like flippant or something, but I don't mean it that way. I just mean well, like, even like, if you delete the first three pages, you know? Well, oftentimes just get it. You know, I, I remember, yeah. in, like when I wrote Knitting in America, like I just had to with each profile I just had to start writing like just start somewhere and sometimes that would end up that would be the beginning of the profile sometimes it would end up totally in the trash and sometimes it would end up being the last paragraph it could end up being anything but it was just something to start with so what did so okay so when people they do the proposal and that's that's key to have you know some kind of and do you not like when people who don't even know you try to call you and you know, say I don't, I don't usually like it if they call me. So you want like, to see something in writing. But I don't mind if they, well, if people have a whole proposal done, they should just send it. Okay. Um, if they... Email or snail mail? Yeah, those are usually okay. And if somebody, yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff comes, like, through somebody who knows me and says, oh, you should talk to Melanie and tell her I said it. You know, and and if it come, it, you know, it's always in this world. It's like who you know. Yeah, and yeah. So there are certain people if if they if they say like so and so suggested I contact you, then it's like oh okay yeah like she would only send me good people. <laughs> um, not that other people aren't good, but you know, right. I have certain people that kind of know what I'm looking for. Um, but I'm you know there's we are just we just published just an extraordinary book called Hardware, which is. Um, Jewelry that's made out of stuff you buy at the hardware store. Did that? I didn't. I haven't seen that one yet, so I'm gonna have to. You go have to. It's, I just love this book so much, and that just came as a just a proposal came in the mail. I mean, I just opened an envelope and I immediately loved it, and I called the author and I just said, you know, I'm really interested in this. Can you come in and we can talk about it? And she's one, I just love working with her. We have a great relationship, and I just adore her book. And you know, we're actually working on a second book right now. So, and who's that so, by? Who's hardware by? Hannah Roggi, R O G G E, and she's an industrial designer. And 
So she had a lot of influence in how the book looks, and and she did all the illustrations, and it's it's just like as an object, it's a wonderful thing. And there's this review on Amazon where somebody like made five or six things in the book, and she like wrote down how great they were, and she wrote like how much it cost to make the piece of jewelry and how many minutes it took. And in a lot of cases, it's like two dollars and twenty four cents, and you know, thirty six minutes. I mean, the stuff is so beautiful, and it's so inexpensive and it's easy to make and the illustrations that Hannah did are so clear and I think that, you know, anybody who's interested in the concept of making jewelry out of nuts and bolts and other things you get at the hardware store yeah, it sounds, definitely... I, I love when cool. you can use, like, Home Depot is, you know, where I go for craft supplies, so I haven't made yeah. any jewelry yet, but that's awesome, so I'm going to have to check that out. When people listen to this, I know a lot of people are going to be very excited that I'm even talking to you, and they can hear, you know, the in, an insider's view of the yeah. whole publishing. Yeah, and I don't world. want to discourage people or seem like, oh, you know, if you don't, if you don't know somebody, I know, don't, you know, don't even bother, because right? it's not like that. I and mean, Hannah was an example. She actually, I do know someone she knows, but she didn't tell me that. Like, she didn't. I just like said later, like, how did you get my name? And then she told me, actually, I knew her mother. <laughs> In any case, like, you know, people can, you know, there's an, there is this idea in publishing, and I think in other parts of publishing this is more prevalent, that, you know, there's this huge flush pile of stuff that comes in that people, it's not through an agent or it's not through some sort of contact, and it's just like nobody pays any attention to it, and that probably happens in much bigger publishing houses. No, did Hannah have, have an agent? Did she have no. an agent? No. And I've heard mixed, I'd be interested in your opinion on this, I've heard people say, you know, you need an agent, you absolutely have to have an agent, otherwise you're going to get completely taken advantage of. Um, yeah. When it comes I think to making a deal, happen, but I was—I guess what I was saying, or I know what I was saying, is that um, for what I do for craft books, like I do look at the proposals. Like there isn't this huge pile of stuff that the people aren't kind of respecting. <laughs> and then in terms of agents, uh, a lot of agents have relationships with editors. So yeah, I, there are certain agents that I work with that I know, like oh, everything she sends me is really good. And so I might make an effort to read a proposal from a certain agent sooner than somebody else. But I don't, in my case, I don't feel like my company, like, takes advantage. Of well, and I definitely didn't want to imply that. Um, I yeah, just, you but know. I know you weren't. But I, I, it could happen, but I wouldn't even, I've never had an experience with a publishing company that did that, but I do hear it. Did and you have possible. an agent yourself? When you were, I didn't. Well, I, I sort of did it a little bit differently. Because I you got knew the my editors, and then I got an agent to negotiate the contract. Which, in retrospect, I don't. I think agents, for the most part, at, at least pay for themselves. You know, if they're taking a certain percentage, they, okay, you at least get that much more than you would have gotten. So you're almost getting the same amount then, right? But you have representation, and you feel better. You know, because you feel like you're. It, it feels like a more even playing field. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, there are certain things that agents will ask for in a contract that an independent author won't. And, yeah, the agent will get it. And it's not, you know, it's like any business deal. But I don't, in our contracts, you know, there's just not, we just don't try to take advantage of people. <laughs> but there's, you know, certain things with, like, different rights that an agent might ask for that might serve the author. I mean, if you, know, if you have any agents who read, I mean, some agents are really, really great and some aren't, just like anything. Mm -hmm. So I think if you have, like, no context in the publishing world, an agent can be a great thing. 
but it doesn't mean that if you don't have an agent, you can't get a book deal. For in what I do, you know, if you're sending it to some like huge publisher and you know you want to do a children's book, which is, you know, I've heard from publishers, they just get like a hundred proposals a day, you know, and there's <laughs> right. like none of it gets read when it doesn't, you know, when it's just from a, a nobody. So do you actually scout for writers, or do you do most of the writers come to you with um, proposals? Well, I do. Stuff comes to me, and then I work with people who I know, or if I see somebody's work, I might contact them. It's hard because I don't have a lot of time. I can imagine <laughs> that you don't. And we, we don't publish that many books, so I have to say no to books that I really like. So, you know, if I say I don't want to publish something, I don't want someone to think like, oh, well, she said no. You know, it's not that it's a bad idea. It's just that I can't publish everything. And it's kind of crazy that, like, after all the years of crafting being considered, like, just so negatively that now there's, like, so many proposals out there. But for my imprint, um, if I were really respecting my own time, I would do three books a season, which is six books a year, but I probably I do more than that because, <laughs> because I just can't resist certain ideas. But still, I'm only doing, let's say, 10 books a year. So. And how many proposals do you get? I don't know. It kind of depends. They come in waves. It's not that many, but it's, you know, I don't know. I'm sitting here at my office, and there are five of them sitting on my floor. I tend to do stuff like when they start, I get overwhelmed. I'll just say, I'm not acquiring any books until September. You know, I'm not even looking at the proposals. And, but it's hard because, you know, you're, you get lured in by certain ones. Well, it sounds like you have a fantastic job, though, to be able to kind of have the influence that you have and what gets published and, and then working with that author to get it through to completion. That must be a lot of fun. It's a great job, but it's really, it's a lot of work. And so it's not great in terms of, the workload. And I just think it's prevalent throughout the publishing industry. You know, we work with very little staff. So, and editors generally work a lot more than 40 hours a week. So do you work from home or do you go into an office or how do you? I, um, I work from home. For the most part, I work from home four days a week and I go into the office one day a week, which I'm really fortunate about. I'm, that's yeah, that okay. sounds awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm pretty lucky. Well, when I um, I live, you know, I drive in to the city, to New York City, to the office, and it takes me between an hour and a half and two hours oh, to wow. drive in. And I do that once a week. I could take the train, but I, for a few different reasons, I don't. But um, so I couldn't do that every day. And when I was when I was offered the job, that they knew that was part of the deal that I couldn't be in the office every day. So it's hasn't been an issue because so is that a family decision like for you to be with your your son and be able to be present at home I think it was you know when my husband and I left New York City it was kind of a lifestyle choice and I think that I love New York City I love being there I'm so glad I go once a week um but once you leave it's hard to go back to like living in you know such a small space and crowded and noisy and, you know, you lose kind of that sort of palace (laughs) that makes some of that sensory (laughs) stuff not so um, stunning when you're there. But, and then also it's just so expensive to live in the city 
And I think, you know, when you're there, you're just doing it. And I did it for a really long time. And, you know, and then I just got to a point where I didn't want to do it anymore. And now I think, you know, I'd love to go back to the city when I have, like, a whole lot of money and <laughs> can live a certain way. And I don't know if that's ever going to happen. But my family also has an apartment in the city. So, you know, I don't go there very often. But if I want to, like, I, I kind of i am pretty lucky because I kind of – I think knowing that you could go and stay over and hang out is, like, enough <laughs> to right. make you not desperately miss it. I mean, I miss the culture and beautiful people and, you know, just sort of seeing really creative people all the time and people that kind of dress really interestingly and art everywhere, <laughs> Well, I know for me, I, I lived in uh, I lived on Long Island for a summer. I was an intern at Newsday back in '96, and uh, trips into the city. It was like at first it was completely overwhelming as a you know girl from Metro Detroit, you know. <laughs> but you know, it's definitely a, a, a faster paced culture, and you know, I'd screw everything up from ordering pizza. You know, I, yeah. I wasn't forceful enough. I'd say, um, could I have a slice of pepperoni, please? You know, in this little yeah. voice, and the guy yeah. was like barking at me, like, "What? I can't even hear you." <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, this is such a rude place, you know. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, then you just kind of you just kind of fall into the rhythm of the city, you know. And it really is quite an amazing place. I mean, because you can never be bored in New York City. Yeah, you know? and once you get used to it, and you're not scared about it, and you know, it's really you don't. It's hard to get lost, and because it's so logical. And so, once you sort of get over the confusing part, then it's. There's so many opportunities. Oh, yeah. And, you know, by the end of the summer, I felt like I fit in a little better. And I was driving like a New Yorker, which was wow. a little problematic when I came back because I was driving with my mom and she said, Jen, what's going on? Your, your yellow lights, you're speeding up. What's going on? <laughs> well, in, in Michigan, we, we slow down. In, in New York, you don't know because the person behind you is probably not, they're probably right. speeding up too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's those little change, the little differences, but, um, I always, you know, ask people, you know, about their challenges. I mean, have you had um, a challenge that, you know, points in your life where you're like, oh, this is so hard. Why am I still trying to do this? Because I think sometimes, you know, it's it's easier to go to a job where you know you're going to have a paycheck at the end of the week, especially when you're you were freelancing. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of pressure on you as an individual to come up with that next job. Yeah. And and kind of, you know, do you see that as one of your greatest challenges, or do you have other things that you've experienced that have kind of well, set the tone for your life? Well, I mean, in terms of career stuff, I mean, there's tons of times when I think, oh, my God, and I can't do this, or, you know, I'm scared about stuff. But I think that what I tend to do is, you know, I really wanted to write a book, and then I did, and then I really always wanted to be the editor of a magazine, and so I did that. But And I, re I did always want to be an editor for a book publishing company and acquire books, and I tend to be kind of like I do it, and I'm like, okay, I did it. I proved I can did it, do it. You know, check. Yeah. <laughs> and then I want to do something else. Yeah. But right now, I um, I'm writing a book of fiction, and and that feels so right because, and that's what I've wanted to do since I was a little girl. And when I, I don't get very much time to work on it, but when I do, I feel like I'm exactly where I should be. But I'm also at the same time really scared. Because well, that's awesome. Yeah. Is it what is your book about? Is it about any craft option you know, a woman? Yeah, does actually craft? it's a book of short stories and this is my I guess what I said, understanding my strengths and under, I kinda understand how to get things done. Like I decided I would write a book of short stories and each they're not about knitting, but each one has something in knitted in it or something about something where knitting is happening. Okay. And each story has a project that goes with it. Oh, excellent. And I have kind of an idea of 
like how it's all going to fit together visually, and it, it's kind of exciting to me. But I, you know, George Boy and Chang agreed to publish it because they know that there are people in the knitting world who know my books and would be drawn to it, to at least look at it or consider it. And then I figure once or if that is successful, then I will be able to potentially write a book of fiction that doesn't have knitting in it. I see. So this is kind of your bridge mm -hmm. to that. To really doing like what has always been my dream, which is to be a fiction writer. Um, so I don't know. There's this story. Um, what's her name? It's called Roman Fever. And of course, the author's name is just like escaping me. But it's this really wonderful story about these two women who get together to talk about something that happened in the past. And um, they are, um, one of them is knitting. And it's just, like amazing how like the knitting is this thing that happens. It's not the story's not at all about knitting, but as the tension builds, you know, <laughs> and you get these little bits and pieces of the story about the woman's hands moving, and I just love that story so much. And so I'm hoping that I can do something similar to that. And you've never had any formal training in writing. Well, a lot of people go out think they in order to write and be successful as a writer, they have to go and to get an MFA or something like I that. I know, and I, that kind of scares me because. <laughs> I well, mean, what makes you think I can write? Well, no, but. and I guess the, let me you know finish the thought here. Um, I think a lot of times, though, you know, people have that, and I know I've subscribed to that thought for a while myself. I was like, okay, I can't possibly go on as a writer, you know, real writer, until I get an MFA, and um, you know, and then I hear you also hear people say that sometimes when you go and you you work on an MFA, you feel like the true writer, the writer that you that is in you, that is. You know, needing to come out sometimes it's kind of beat out of you in a MFA, yeah, so it doesn't work I've, for everybody. You know, I think everybody has to sort of follow whatever path feels right, and I think for some people, probably you know, going for the MFA and doing that, you know, really works. And you know, you always hear about people who develop like a, a novel while they're and then they get it published, and and so that can, I'm sure that can be really great. And I think there's probably some people where it's it's really just another way to procrastinate, you know, because they're afraid to right. be a writer. So it just depends on who you are, and I think it would be, like, amazing to be able to, like, go to school and, and write all the time, and I'm just, that's not the path that I've taken, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but that would be really great. But I don't, I don't feel like I really need that, and I think it may be, you know, when you're a kid and the things that you're really supported in, you kind of have confidence about and mm -hmm. you pursue. And I got so much positive feedback. When I was in the fifth grade, my I wrote this story just on my own, and I brought it in and showed it to my teacher. And she just, like, made such a big deal about it, how great it was. And it was such a long time ago. that She brought me her typewriter from home, and she, like, set up this, like, writing area for me. Wow. <laughs> and um, I actually, you know, I thanked her in the acknowledgments of being in America because... I think that makes a big difference, you know, when a teacher, like, really believes in you and your parents believe in you. And um, so I guess I always just had this idea that I could do it. Well, and you're doing it. Yeah, well, hopefully it'll be good. Yeah, so when when are you expecting to have this come out? And do you have a working title? I do, but I'm not going to tell you. Okay. Um, I think because I'm in charge of the imprint, you know, more or less, I, I just extended my deadline. Um, ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's going to be follow eight. It, okay. It, that would be the latest. I think that's what I, it was, I think it was, we originally said spring 07 and 
I just have so many books that I'm editing right now. But I did take a little bit of time off a few weeks ago, and I worked on my book, and I loved every minute of it. So do you write every day? No. No? I, I'm really lucky so far in that I can um, I can just pick up and, like, you know, when I can fit it in, I do it. Like, I wrote a short story that was published in the, what's that book called? Uh, a Passion for Knitting. Mm-hmm. And um, I literally, like, wrote that story, like, at the time I was taking the train into the city, like, on the train, on the way home, and, like, for 20 minutes at a time before I, like, fell asleep. And I worked on it, like, in bits and pieces, and then one day I just kind of put it all on the computer because I was just working in a notebook and started, you know, then I kind of refined it. So I'm always afraid I won't work, but for now I'm able to, like, I kind of get into the writing space pretty easily. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because some people have to do a whole... You know, light five candles, have some yeah. incense, uh, do some yoga, and then, okay, I'm ready to write. <laughs> I think if I had more time, I would do that. <laughs> so you could just, like, snap into it. I know my training as a journalist has, has forced me to just, if I have something to write, it's like I just write. Get it done because I don't have right, any choice. Kind of, you just have to. It's like I don't have time. It's just like being, you know, you're on a deadline all the time. And, you know, I'm, I don't have my, you probably think, my God, if I had to follow eight. I mean, although I, I have to finish the book almost a year before it's actually published, but um, no, you just like it, some things take however long you have. Like if you tell me I have a week to write something, it takes me a week. If you tell me I have an hour, it takes an hour. <laughs> right, right. But I just looked it up in Roman Roman Fever. That story that I love is written by Edith Wharton. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna read that. And everybody at home should too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a short, it's short story. It's a short but, story, yeah, so it won't take much time. Okay. Yeah, and I think the. When I read it in a book called Roman Fever and Other Stories by Edith Wharton. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, so do you have, um, you know, any, um, you've given already some great, you know, in, your insights have, are very valuable, I'm sure, to all the people who will listen to this. Um, but do you have any, you know, just advice in general for folks that are looking to, even if it's not to get into publishing, they just have this dream that they want to, whether it's making their, you know, creative hobby into a, a lifestyle chain, making that their business or that their job. What is it like to have your passion as your job? It's not um, necessarily, it doesn't remain your passion anymore, actually. <laughs> it just changes it. I mean, you something and you give up something. You know, you gain a focus in your life, you know, because when it's your job, you know, you have to spend so much time thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But um, at the same time, then, because it's your job, there's pressure on you because, you know, people have expectations. You know, it's one thing to love knitting and, you know, to go to the yarn store when you feel like it and to make what you want, to finish what you want when you want to finish it and and to kind of um, get all that joy from it and without anybody having a particular expectation on you. But... Then if you, let's say, decide to, you know, write a knitting book, and, and in my case, you know, I work with lots of different designers, and, you know, I'm not really designing the actual projects that are in the book. I'm working with people developing them. But for what, whatever it is, you know, then you, there's a lot of, like, stuff that goes into that, you know, like packing up boxes and dealing with people, with deadlines and, and mistakes and, and things, you know, worrying about things selling and worrying about, 
you know, I mean, I'm really a believer in just in terms of the book world. I always tell people, you know, just make the best book you can make. Make it so that you feel really, really proud of it. And then it's really not our job to worry about whether it sells or it is my job a little bit. But the author, you know, I think, you know, just know at the end of the day whether it sells or not that you're really proud of what you've done. But it's it's hard. <laughs> it's a hard process. And I feel lucky to do what I do, but and certainly, you know, in sort of listening in my head to what you and I are saying, it, it does sound very idyllic. <laughs> but, you know, as soon as I hang up, <laughs> talk to one of my girlfriends about all the things that went wrong today in my job, and um, tons of them do, and, and tons of things happen that I don't want to happen. And I really do long for the day when I can actually sit down and, and have and feel calm enough to like just knit a project and and without feeling rushed or without feeling like somebody you know has I should be doing something else or you know I love to knit but I don't knit very often and I don't I don't actually in some ways I don't enjoy it as much as I used to but I know I will again <laughs> And even in terms of, like, the other books that I work on and the editing, like, oftentimes I'm really inspired by these authors. And I think, oh, gosh, you know, I would love to do that. And, you know, I want to make the jewelry out of the hardware or I want to learn how to quilt or something. And not only do I not really have time, or I don't succeed at making time to do it, but I feel like my mind is racing so much all the time with all this stuff mm-hmm. that I, I don't feel like I can calm myself down enough to do it. So it's, yeah, so it's, and I think part of, you know, kind of going back to one of the things you said earlier about how you have kind of the whole checklist mentality, I do the same thing. I make a list of goals, and then when I get, achieve something, it's like, okay, I've done that, on to the next one. And so when when it's your passion and you're, you've been successful at all these things, you've, you've kind of clicked away on your list, you know. When you're, I think part of the, when we're all chasing a goal mm-hmm. or chasing the passion, you have this drive to to get it it's like okay you know i'm gonna i'm gonna get this i'm gonna accomplish this thing and then when you do does you feel like some of it kind of fades away because the chase is over you know and you're you know you're 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 there and it sounds like you're you enjoy your work but it's just not um you know of course now you're chasing that fiction yeah so you always there's always a chase it's just a little different yeah i have a feeling with the fiction that i might be kind of like okay this is it yeah always where I thought I wanted to be but you know I'm very practical so you know it's really hard to make a living as a writer of fiction and so you know I took what could be considered a circuitous route to my ultimate dream but kind of makes sense kind of smart well I think (laughs) it's very smart because I know I um, have actually had the same dream as a you know as a little girl I would write fiction loosely based on reality which um, sometimes would get me into a little trouble (laughs) but yeah but I decided pretty young that a way to make money I don't know if someone told me or I read it somewhere that in, in a writer's market or, you know, some magazine that making money as a, as a writer of fiction is really hard. So I thought, well, you know, journalism is pretty practical. I can do that, you know. And the, the challenge, though, is when you get stuck in, if you're successful at something that's not really your ultimate passion, it's hard to kind of jump and hope your parachute opens doing something else, even if it's, Yeah, well, and it's also you know, hard because you, you grow adulthood and then you have like a mortgage and a car payment and a child and you know you have like so many demands and then it's like wait a minute you know what happens to that dream right and so time to pursue it and that's what I try to remind myself and everyone that listens to the show every week that you know 
you got to hold on to those things that you're passionate about and and find a way to go for it because if you don't you yeah. only get one life to live you know well unless yeah. you believe in reincarnation but, 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 yeah but yeah so um well, so it's really cool to see how you're you're getting there to that ultimate fiction. Yeah, goal. and I did want to clarify one thing. I did have a little bit of training in, as a writer. <laughs> no, I didn't mean to say you imply that you're like illiterate and had never gone to you know finish. No, the first no, grade. and I don't want to imply like, oh yeah. no, I'm just a natural. Um, what, the funny thing is, when I was in college, well, I did take a creative writing class, which was very interesting, and I took one, and then I took a journalism class, but they said like we were supposed to go out and interview people like strangers and you for were an like, what's so, up with that you know <laughs> and this was in washington dc so you know most of the time they were training people to be like reporters and you know for like hard news and i am um, i terrified of the idea of actually interviewing someone so i made the whole thing up oh. you know so awful like i mean it would, i would go to jail if i did it in real life and i got like an a on it and you know <laughs> Did you feel, like, overcome with guilt? I mean... No, because I think, you know, I was really good at fiction. And you just were very convincing. I know, it's terrible. Now when I think back, it's like I totally lied. But I think that I was so shy, and I think that I was... The idea of actually, like, approaching strangers on the street was so unfathomable to me that I, um, I just couldn't do it. I didn't feel like I could do it, and... It was funny because I thought about it a lot when I was working on Knitting in America where I was just, like, interviewing people every day. Yeah, and it is a whole different thing. I mean, because I think that's part of the, you know, when journalists, uh, young writers first start out, you know, if they're going into the newspaper business or, you know, any other kind of journalism, it is it is kind of unnerving at times when you come on the scene and sometimes it's in horrible circumstances and you don't know these people, they don't know you, and you're kind of intruding on their lives and you have to be able to conduct yourself where you're respecting them and you're still yeah. getting the information you need to get and it's um uh, yeah for me I, I think I always thought I wanted to write fiction as a kid but what I found is that all my writing even when I look back at the you know stuff that I wrote as a kid it's totally true I mean it's it's very I mean it's it you know you can totally see that I'm writing basically the truth and so for me I think I'll always stick with nonfiction. yeah it's a little bit scary because people you know and I think about how much people read into if you do write fiction. Oh, they think it's true anyway, you know. <laughs> yeah, and they, you know, it's like, well, which part is true? And did that really happen to you? And, you know, it all it comes out of you, so there is some base in reality. Yeah. Well, it's, try to mix it up enough that it's like you can't pinpoint what's real life and Fiction. Well, it's certainly better to be a fiction writer accused of writing the truth than uh, someone who claims to be writing an autobiography, which we've yeah. heard uh, Oprah got caught up in that whole thing not too long ago. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's that's just really bad if you're trying to pass something, you know, um, as a professional, uh, you know, novel or writer. But um, yeah. yeah, so, well, it's really cool. I think people are going to be inspired to hear, you know, what you have to say about just pursuing that dream that you've had since you were a little girl, that you're still... You know, you're you're closer to now than you've ever been before. So that's really exciting. And um, if people want to send you something, and I, I assume that, you know, people are going to, you know, there are several people have told me that they're thinking about, you know, they want to do the book. They have their crafty blog going and all that. And um, so I hopefully they'll be able to kind of, you know, whether they approach your publisher or somebody else's, they'll, you know, have a little more information now about how to yeah, go mean, about it and be successful. I hope so, and, you know, I think people shouldn't hesitate to send stuff, 
and sometimes it takes us a while to respond. But as I said, we, you know, we always look at it. And if we say no, don't give up. Very good words. And I, I do want to ask, uh, I read um, on the internet, and I think it was your Interweave Press bio, for, so it's a little bit older now, but yeah. um, that you enjoy taking flying trapeze classes. Now, is that re really something you did? Yes, I love the flying trapeze. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> How in the world did you get into that? I wanted to do it. My, I was a gymnast when I was a kid, but I always wanted to do flying trapeze, and I just didn't you know, for many years, I didn't know how one would ever go about that, but I I did what most people do who have a little bit of interest, which was a little odd for me. I went to Club Med because they had trapeze, and I tried it there, and I loved it. And then a trapeze school opened, actually 15 minutes from where I used to live, but and 45 minutes from where I live now. And I don't go as much as I want, but it's it's outdoors, so I do it every sort of May through October as much as I can. Wow. And I love it. I absolutely love it. And I think when you're doing the flying trapeze, you have to be totally present. Well, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not that, you know, I, there's all sorts of safety lines and precautions. So it's not that, you know, it's not a danger. Not in, you know, if you get distracted, something awful is going to happen. But it's all about timing. Mm -hmm. And it's, you're kind of doing a bunch of things that are a little challenging at first. You know, like, I want you to, people say, like, you're going to go climb up really high, then you're going to go upside down, and then you're going to let go. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, I don't know if I could do that. So you have to say, you know, I find it really relaxing because you have to, whatever went wrong in your home or in your work that day, you have to let go of it for those moments. <laughs> right, because you, you have too many other things to worry about. Yeah. You know. <laughs> well, and not necessarily worried. Well, I mean, I mean, pay yeah, pay attention too. Yeah. Like. And I actually had an experience recently. I was at class, and and I kind of I did fall, and I was in the safety lines, and everything was fine. But I, I got a little bit, and I wasn't really nervous when I fell because I felt safe. I just was kind of annoyed with myself. But then there was a break before I went again, and I said to the guy who was on the board, which is the thing you jump off of, and I said, oh, you know, I, I had a lot of time to get nervous. And he just said, well, just forget about everything else and just do this. You know, like as if you've, you know, you've never did it before. Just pay attention to what you're doing right now. And it was so true that that's all I needed to do. <laughs> like forget about that you messed up last time and just do it this time and be, pay attention to how you're doing it this time. And that's a really, you know, great lesson in life. And it's so much fun. I, I think I've always felt really comfortable upside down for some reason. <laughs> Oh, well, it sounds wonderful. Like, it'd be quite a rush to, to be able to do that. So are you able to do, like, whole routines? And, I mean, I have no, I'm trying to picture how close this is to, like, a circus, what you would see the professionals do. Well, some of the people do. I do it with are really, really good. And, you know, I, I wish I had time to be really good. And I'm, you know, compared to people who don't do trapeze or compared to other people... My well, I'm just age. trying to imagine, like, what, is this just a bunch of people, like, working professionals who go to trapeze lessons? Mostly, but then there are a few people, you know, who get, I mean, a lot, sometimes people get into it and they really do pursue it a great deal, and um, I just know one person who's now is going to circus school after doing the trapeze at my, the place that I go, but it, it 
definitely something people start really incorporating into their life if they can. There's some women in my class who, one's like a yoga teacher and one's a Pilates teacher, and they don't have kids, and they have a lot of time, and they just go to every single class, I think. And, you know, I just, I'm lucky if I get to go once a week just because it's difficult to fit it in. But it's, if you do trapeze and you like it, you want to do it all the time. So do you think you might want to go to circus school at some point? Oh, you know, yeah. I'm not circus. <laughs> I don't want to learn how to be a clown. I would, wouldn't mind going to just do trapeze. Trapeze, yeah. Yeah, I would like that. I don't know that I will. Oh, well, sometimes I, I look into, like, week-long workshops. That's probably more realistic, and I would like to do that. <laughs> and I might do that. Well, I think it's wonderful. And what a, what a great thing, because I, I, I know I don't run into too many people in Michigan who, in fact, I've never talked to anyone before who is... Um, accomplished when it comes to the flying trapeze well, i wouldn't i don't know that i'm accomplished but... well you're at least um i guess we'd say um experienced when it comes to the flying trapeze because uh short of having a conversation with someone at the the circus that comes through town i don't even yeah. know if there's a place around here in michigan where you can actually learn this stuff oh well, i'm but, not sure there probably yeah. is do a google search yeah well this is not something i personally will follow you into i don't have a i have a background as a swimmer not oh. as a person flying through the air with any, any agility at all so um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's wonderful that's absolutely wonderful so um those are your that's your other outside interest uh, do you have anything on your needles right now no no i was i know i went away for a few days and i was i kept on thinking oh okay, i gotta get a project on my knitting needles and i never i just ran out of time because i was busy like editing things till the moment before I left. And, you know, I did find time to do other things to prepare for my trip, but I don't think so. If there's something on the needles, it's, it's sort of like I'll, I'll have to open one of my knitting bags and find it. But I knitted a bunch last winter, like, for, like, presents for people. And I, I haven't knitted since, but I would like to. And, you know, certainly every day I come across things in the books that I'm working on with other authors that I would love to make. And so, you know, hopefully I will. <laughs> Are you into other crafts? I mean, or do you really specialize? I know you're considered a knitting expert. Um, do you crochet and quilt and all that stuff too? Not, well, I kind of know how a little bit. I, I know how to crochet and I know how to sew, but I'm not very good. I mean, I, I'm just not very meticulous and patient about it, um, but I kind of know how it works. And, mm -hmm. I really would. I did. We did. When we did the kids' embroidery book. I um, really loved the idea of doing embroidery, and but I only, you know, I tried out the stitches, and you know, I really enjoyed doing my French knots and lazy daisies and all that stuff. <laughs> but I, I haven't sat down and worked on a project. And the weaving book. That was the only one where I loved, like, you know, the idea of weaving certain things. But that one was. Well, actually, I did want to do some weaving, but that one was the, it was a stretch because I hadn't been personally interested in weaving, although I was very interested in, like, the idea of weaving. And so that was hard at first, and, it, you know, the author had to explain so many times to me how, many, how things worked, which I think in the end really helped the book because things are so crystal clear because, like, I didn't know, I, I was, like, I didn't know anything. <laughs> well, yeah, it probably made it actually a much better book because if you knew everything about it, then you wouldn't be able to guess what a reader wouldn't know. Yeah. 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 I think it helped. Um, but we had a great author, and she, you know, made it especially good. But, yeah, it helped that I didn't know anything. But, you know, I think she got a little impatient with me in the beginning. Cause I was <laughs> like, come on, thing. lady. You know, get with it here. Yeah. 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 
Well, yeah. yeah, I'm completely addicted to um, basically all things crafty. I have a loom that I bought after I graduated from college. Um, if I would have had one semester, I probably more semester left. Uh, I probably would have changed my major and gone into art, you know, like an art major. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But, no, I mean, I'm inspired by so many things that, you know, do-it-yourself things like felting stuff and, and just so many of the books that are out now and you know, we did a book called Alterna Crafts, and there's a project for making these little wallets out of, like, candy wrappers. And, you know, I'd love to sit down and do that. But it, that really goes back to what you said about what happens when you turn your passion into your job. And it's not about sitting around crafting all day for me. <laughs> right, because then the editing wouldn't get done. Right. You know? Yeah. And do you consider yourself, like, when people ask you, you know, do you, are you, do you think that you're more a, an editor and writer than a, a craftsperson? Per se, or I mean, or do you yeah, feel like you're? Yeah, yeah. I think that when my life is a little less hectic, and maybe when my son's a little bit older, then I'll be do more sort of crafting stuff. But you know, like many most working moms and or most people these days, generally, like right. you know, I'm lucky if if I actually make dinner, <laughs> let alone make a hat. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, it's just been wonderful to talk to you. I think it's been, uh, your your story will be inspiring to people uh, to hear how you got your start. And I don't know if there's anything I didn't ask you or anything that, you know, you're, uh, you'd like to share about your life or any of your experiences. Um, I think covered a lot. Um, I did write other books that we didn't talk about, and I kind of feel like I should mention the titles. Just yeah, and what you can do, go ahead and mention the titles. I did a book called Knitting for a Baby with Kristen Nicholas. Actually, I have that one too, yeah. Yeah, about that she's one, the yeah. author of the kids' embroidery book that we did, and um, we did that together. And um, then I did Weekend Knitting, and we put out a journal that goes with that. And then I did Hand It Holidays, which came out last fall. And that's it. I think those are all the ones that I'm listed as an author on. And with with your books, I mean, like with kids knitting, did you come up with all the projects in there? Because I know, like, well, I worked with a lot of different people. Okay, because you're really focused um, on the writing. Well, it's work. kind of weird. I feel like I'm I'm actually kind of like an art director, <laughs> and a and in some cases, like in terms of working with designers, and I've done it quite a bit on you know the books that I've done, and also when I was the editor of the magazine. In some cases, people, you know, I'd say, oh, I'm looking. Sometimes people would just send me stuff out of the blue, and I'd be like, oh my gosh, this is perfect for something that I'm working on. And then other times I'll call people that I know and say, you know, I'm thinking I want something like this and I think it should be in this yarn and, you know, we'll kind of hash it out and talk about all the different options. And, you know, there it goes everything from, you know, somebody just sending me something I love and I'm sort of interested in including it in a project I'm working on as is to me kind of virtually designing it and then finding someone to execute it, like everything in between. But... You know, it's, um, I feel like, like my name is on the cover of the books that I've worked on um, because, you know, certainly I've done the writing and, you know, and I've come up with the ideas for the book and all, but, you know, there are a lot of other people that deserve a lot of credit for it. Well, I think that it's just a great collection that you have of, of books that you've put out there for all of us to enjoy. So I really do appreciate that. Well, thanks. Well, thanks for doing your, your show. 
Thanks to Melanie for inspiring us with her story. I'll try to lure her back on the show when her collection of fiction is published because I'm thinking that many of you might be curious about how her latest publishing adventure unfolds. I know I am. And we wish her the best. And hopefully, you know, we can all support her too when that book comes out. I'm going to post a new project this weekend as soon as I get a chance to cook something up for you. Both of my daughters are sick. So my big craft sanity plans uh, kind of had to be scaled back this week. Also, I want to extend my heartfelt thanks to Rosalie out in California for making a donation to the podcast. Uh, I really appreciate your support, and I guess I am just basically amazed. <laughs> wow. You know, I, I don't think it's going to be possible for me to get an inflated ego because I still am in denial that listeners exist. I mean, even though you guys email me, and I guess now people are sending me money, <laughs> I guess in my mind, I just can't fathom this. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And, and thanks to all of you who have been sending these wonderful emails. All those notes, you know, when I have days where I'm like, oh gosh, I'm so tired. I, I don't think I, I don't know if I can keep doing this. It seems like every time that I have a thought like that, it's pushed out of my head by an email I receive from someone saying, hey, that was fun. I like it. Keep doing it. So thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this. And um, now back to my shameless self-promotion. Jeff, as I mentioned, set up the t-shirt store on my website. There are black shirts with your choice of pink or green printing. There are pictures on the website so you can see kind of what you're getting into. You'll also find some Craft Sanity buttons for sale too. Consider adding a Craft Sanity t-shirt to your uh, wardrobe to support the show and also help promote it at the same time. I had plans to bring you some more voices of people that I interviewed at the Detroit Urban Craft Fair. I just have not been able to creatively schedule my day to fit everything in that I wanted to do. So instead of cramming those interviews into this show, I decided just to hold them back and take a little more time to put them together. Thanks so much for tuning in. I really appreciate that. I'll be back here next week. If you have an idea, a show topic suggestion, or an artist or crafter or writer that you think I should interview, feel free to let me know. I really appreciate that. You guys have a fabulous week. In the meantime, don't forget to craft sanity. It works for me. Thanks for listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast with Jennifer Ackerman Haywood. Visit CraftSanity.com for more information about today's guests and links to subscribing to the podcast. Want to support the show? Follow the link to vote for Craft Sanity on Podcast Alley once a month. You can also make a donation or buy goods at the Craft Sanity store. Have a suggestion for a future guest or have other feedback? Email Jennifer at CraftSanity.com. Thanks again for listening to Craft Sanity. Craft Sanity.